We are going to be in James chapter 5. We're actually going backwards a little bit. If you remember um, a few weeks ago, I, uh, I bit off more than I could chew, and out of love for you, I just stopped uh, in the middle of the sermon. Um, but then, out of my love for teaching God's Word, that chunk of the sermon expanded, so now we're back at a normal um, length. But it gives me a little bit more time to be able to spend in these very important verses. And so this is the final warning that James gives in this little stretch um, of boasting um, about tomorrow. He warns against worldliness, and he now turns his attention uh, to the rich. He says in verse 1, chapter 5, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Father, I pray that you would give us soft hearts this morning, that would hear your word, that would lean into any conviction knowing that it is your kindness that leads us to repentance, but that we would honestly, Lord, look at our lives and ask ourselves if we are placing our trust in you, if we are treasuring the kingdom above all things. Lord, let us not be afraid to hear your voice this morning and to trust you in faithful obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. So you may notice that is a pretty strongly worded paragraph by James. If you were paying attention, you might have cringed a few times in the things that he's saying and the words that he is choosing and it's a really unique passage, actually, in Scripture, both because of how strongly James words this warning, which is the strongest language that he uses, and arguably some of the strongest language in all of the New Testament. But it is also unique in that it seems to be aimed at the rich in the entire world. So most of the New Testament is written to the church. And in fact, Paul often says, what do you have to do with judging those outside of the church? Like, focus here. And we um, spend a lot of time talking about, okay, the Bible is written to us to be faithful. Like, we need to stop worrying so much about what's going on in the world and make sure that we are displaying the glory of God together as God's family on mission. But here, James is, um, is using some language that makes us think that he's not just talking to the rich that are in the church. He's giving a rebuke of the rich in the world. Uh, just one example of why that's the, we think that's the case is because he, um, he doesn't use the term brothers like he usually does. Like that's just one example of how he uses some different language and he's talking about some things that are happening. Now, he's also talking to the church who are, many of whom are poor and who are oppressed by the wealthy. 
And so I think what he's doing is, is a couple of things here. I think his aim is, is twofold. One is he wants to let the poor know that God sees how the rich oppress you. It may seem like there are people who have all the power now, and it may seem like they can get away with anything, which, uh, which can bur- like kind of stir in our hearts to f- make us feel like we've got to make everything just right now because we can't let anybody get away with anything. And James wants to let them know that those who deliver injustice and oppress others, God sees that. And he will call them to an account. It's a little bit like letting somebody overhear your rebuke to a group of people that you would know that this is being taken care of. So I think that is one main aim of James here. But there's another one too. And that is in that rebuke that the church would not envy the rich. That they would not copy them, that they would not seek to be like the rich of the world. Which also carries with it for those Christians, those who in the church who have money, that they would not use the world as their example of how to function with money. And that's a tempting thing to do. It's very tempting in the church to say, okay, I'm going to look to Jesus and look to scripture for um, some of the principles of how I might go about doing business or how I might approach money from a kind of philosophical standpoint, but when it comes to actually like how to grow a successful business or how to invest, like I look to the world on how to do that. And that's tempting. And money is often brought up because it seems to offer us everything we could possibly want. And because we often think of it in worldly terms with just a little bit of a little bit of uh, religious kind of accoutrements or a little tint to it, but primarily we think of it as the world thinks of it. We tend to follow people who gain it by worldly means and use it in worldly ways. At the very least, to defend ourselves and justify things by saying, well, at least I'm not like them. I think there's a danger here that we would read this passage and think of ourselves as the poor. It's very common right now in our country to, to, think, to, to think that there are, is a very small percentage of wealthy people in our country and the rest of us are just the poor, you know, working class. But the reality is that we live in the wealthiest country in the history of the world. And that wealth is more spread out than it has ever been. And so I think we need to remember and be open to what James is saying here, both as we are in the position, maybe at times, of feeling like injustice is being done to us, but also to be open and honest about are we, are we a part of who James is warning here? You have to remember James lives in a time where there are the haves and the have-nots, and the way people stayed wealthy was to keep other people poor. And so there is a lot of, there's a lot of evil that is going on underneath it. And I'm just saying that I think we absolve ourselves of that a lot because we look at others and say, well, yeah, but I'm not them. Like I'm not Bill Gates, so I'm not wealthy. Not realizing that for most people in our country, not all, 
But for most people in our country, we are the 1%. And to be mindful of that. Now, here's what I want to do in this. James gives three specific warnings to the church, and I want us to be open to hearing those things. And the the tricky thing about something like this is, is it's so tempting to take these things and to put it through the lens that we most often hear this through. And the lens we most often hear things like this through are our political lenses, our worldly lenses. And I just want to make one plea for those who are Christ followers to say that if we can't talk about this from a scriptural point of view, then we're in trouble. If we can't say as a church, as Christ followers who are citizens of a kingdom first, that we're going to think about this and try to think about this the way that God would reveal to us through his word, Not using his word to just kind of slap on whatever thing we think is most important, but to actually honestly look and say, okay, God, what do you have for us here? And to trust him that what he's offering us is better. If we can't do that here, then we're in trouble. And so I'm just hopeful that you will hang in here with me through this and understand that these are the kinds of things that if we're not going to be afraid to teach the whole counsel of God then that means we have to be willing to be uncomfortable. And believe me, any discomfort you feel, I am matching it tenfold. Well, maybe not any discomfort you feel, but I'm, I'm certainly uncomfortable. But I trust God in this. He gives these warnings specifically against hoarding, extravagance, and injustice. And what I want to do is not just give the warning, but show what James is revealing behind there, that there is good news in this. And and it's not just a don't do this. What we see always in scriptures, God doesn't just say, hey, don't do this thing. He's saying, pursue this better thing. And so what we're going to see is how the kingdom flips these things upside down, that the world is given over to things like hoarding and extravagance and injustice. But the kingdom of God flips those things upside down. And says, no, no, this is how you who belong to God are to respond. So the first warning he gives is against hoarding. And it is strong. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Yikes! You have laid up treasure in the last days. So he's saying like corrosion and the waste of what you have hoarded together will be evidence against you and will bring God's God's judgment. And this is very similar to what Jesus warns about in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember these parallels that James is pointing back to the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus, not just in the Sermon on the Mount, but in other places, in Luke 12, someone in the crowd said to him, to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made, you, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. 
I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. It's revealing a heart issue that's going on here. It's not just about this action. It's revealing a heart issue that what is the motivation of tearing down your barns and building bigger barns and hoarding more and more? Is it not this? Is it not security? Is it not that we're hoping if we just have enough, then we can finally rest easy? I would ask for a show of hands, but I'm not going to. But I would say, how many of, how many of you would say, just you can answer in your mind. You can raise your hand if you want to. Um, but how many of you would say you have prepper-type tendencies? Like, or you just think, like, you know, the blizzard comes in, you think, like, I gotta, I gotta get to the store, I gotta stock up on goods. Yeah, I got a couple. I mean, that's what I love about preppers. They're kind of like, yeah, man, yeah, of course. Um, and, and, I, and I get it, that tendency to say, okay, I gotta make sure in case the grid goes down, in case everything goes nuts, like, that we, do we have enough food? Do we have enough water? Do we have a way of keeping warm? And, and um, but the, the idea is that we just, like, it's, it's never enough, right? Like this sense of security, like our, our sense that if I just prepare enough, then I can handle any circumstance. But James is arguing and, and um, condemning that mentality of boasting and thinking that we're actually in control of anything. The reality is that there isn't ever enough to rest easy. John Rockefeller, at the time, who's the richest man on earth... And people were saying, like, man, don't you have enough? He was asked one time, how much money is enough? His answer, just a little bit more. I look at retirement calculators. Have you ever made the mistake of entering your money into a retirement calculator? According to those, I'll be able to retire when I'm 148. (laughs) So, you know, good luck. They're both intriguing and they're terrifying to me. Like, here's, here's what I realized. They're worldly. Not that retirement is worldly. We live in a culture where that is necessary. We don't, we're not able in our culture to work um, in, until, like, until we're like 95 or whatever. That's not the way our system is set up. And so retirement itself, saving for that, is not, um, not in and of itself sinful. That's not the point. But we live in a culture um, that we need to understand that those calculators are taken from a worldview, that you are in control of your own kingdom. And if you just save enough, everything will be fine. But if you notice, if you ever look at those, there's never a max. There's never a, hey, you have all you need, you should give away the rest. That's never one of the options on, on the scale. It's always something like, if you want to meet your goals, if you want to, to survive in retirement, you need to save $28,000 a month for the next 58 years. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. But $29,000 a month would be better. All the time. But the kingdom offers another path. The kingdom takes that desire for security and takes that desire to hoard, to feel safe, and flips it upside down and says, You don't need to worry about what you will eat or drink. Your father knows that you need these things. In his spirit, 
The kingdom flips upside down the ways of the world and turns hoarding on earth into investing in the kingdom. Like the gold and silver have corroded and the corrosion of those things is evidence against them. It goes to waste. It just sits there. But in the kingdom, God gives us resources, not that we would hoard them for ourselves, but that we would turn them out and use them for others. Jesus says this, he alludes, like I said in Sermon on the Mount, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the world says you're never going to have enough. But the gospel says that God who has everything, has made you an heir to all things. He flips everything upside down. Don't hoard treasures for yourself here. Store up treasures in heaven where they can't fade away. And we do that by investing in the kingdom, which means obviously, first and foremost, put your money um, to work here like in, in the church family, to take care of the church family, supporting our family and, and the work of the ministry here in this area. And we endeavor to be good stewards in light of this. We faced this as a, as a church uh, a few years ago where we thought, like, are we building bigger storehouses? Like, what, what does it look like to be a good steward? And what does it look like to then start hoarding money? And so the deacons um, put together a proposal. We asked the deacons, hey, would you, just, would you consider together, both biblically and practically, what does it look like to say we need to have this much in our savings account? That's being a good steward. But if we start going over that amount, that's going to start feeling like hoarding. And so they did that. We wanted to, to reject buying into the lie that if we just have a little bit more, just a little bit more in the savings, then it'll be enough in, in, in the case of any disaster. We don't want to build bigger storehouses here. We want to use that money that God has entrusted with us to invest in the kingdom. And so we endeavor to do that. We also endeavor to do that through supporting missionaries. You can take that money and support in missionaries who are doing kingdom work in other areas in the world and with other people groups. We have a whole list of them. Uh, you can find them on our church website and talk to us. The vast majority of those missionaries came from our church that we sent out. And so taking that money and saying, you know what? I do have enough to take care of my family. And, and I'm going to look at this honestly. And then I'm going to say, you know, at some point, I'm going to start giving that away and investing in kingdom things. He warns, it makes a second warning here that's similar to the hoarding. He warns against extravagance. Look at verse five. He said, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. See, in James's culture, it was normal for the wealthy to live in extravagance. They were seen, that was a way of displaying that you were successful that you were um, talented, that you were a higher class, and that you were blessed by God. That's a foreign culture, huh? Can't possibly relate to that. See, flaunting their wealth was seen as normal. Living in extravagance was seen as normal. Like, it's yours. Use it like that. But like with hoarding, it calls out our desire to feel secure in our own strength and work. And this demonstrates our apathy toward those who are suffering as the rich um, 
as, as the rich continues to, to, to just stuff our faces with whatever we can get a hold of. Like that's the reality. That's the picture that James is pointing when he says, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Like people are suffering and dying around you and you're oblivious to it. Told you this is uncomfortable. I just thought of different examples of what does that look like in our culture. And one thing that popped into my mind is the literal comparison of that with food waste. I mean, it's both with hoarding and with extravagance. But did you know a, a third, an estimated third of the food that is produced for human consumption in the world goes to waste? One third. That's enough to feed two billion people. And so we are faced with this all the time of extravagance and needing more. I've always felt this struggle with um, churches that are financially stable in, in areas. Like right now, there's, a, there's an issue in the evangelical church where the places that we want to plant churches are in the wealthy places that can support a church with a big building and a big staff. And what that means is people who want to plant churches in areas that can't financially support them those churches don't get planted. And we have to wonder, like, when we give all this stuff and we say, like, all this goes to waste when other people are going without, are we willing to trust God enough to look at that and say, God, search me? What, what does faithfulness look like? And here's what we find with the kingdom, is he doesn't just say, like, you know, don't have extravagance ever. He says, he turns extravagance upside down and turns it into extravagant generosity. Look at Acts 4. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands of houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Just want to point out that what I did there was just read the Bible. Okay? And if you read that passage in light of what we've been talking about and you feel uncomfortable, you're not alone. But just like we look at other people and other worldviews and say like, hey, just because the Bible makes you uncomfortable doesn't mean you can just ignore it or pick and choose, right? We all agree on that. Well, then let's not do it with passages like this. Let's be honest enough to say, ah, oh, we all have these tendencies to say like, oh, I'm just going to gloss over this one real quick and like, oh, here, I feel better about this one. This is not a mandate but it is a story of what happened in the church when people were consumed by an extravagantly generous God and it flowed out of them to radical, extravagant generosity to their brothers and sisters. And it's powerful. Like the early church went over the top of generosity. It was extravagant, but it was in their care for one another. And it was amazing to people who watched it. 
Because it wasn't just for other people, like other people of their own kind. It was other people from other nationalities and other classes and other geographies because they said those are our brothers and sisters. And that was the testimony to the unbelieving world. It wasn't just that they took care of one another. It wasn't just like the wealthy Jews were taking care of the poor Jews. It was that Jews and Gentiles and Greeks were taking care of one another in a way that even families didn't do. It showed that they were even a stronger form of family than the world knew. And why were they like that? Because they were their father's children. They were submitted to their king. They were reflecting the extravagant generosity of their father. Paul says in Ephesians 1, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Like these, this language that the New Testament authors use about God's grace, like God doesn't just dole out a little bit of grace here and there. He lavishes it upon us. He is extravagantly generous. And if we belong to him, then that flows out of us and we are to be extravagantly generous. We live in a culture of extravagance, extravagant things, extravagant hobbies, extravagant travel. And we think that we're immune to it because we can always find somebody who spends more. There's always somebody that has a bigger house, a nicer car, a nicer boat, a better vacation. There's always somebody. But the question isn't comparing yourself to all them. The question is, are you willing to go to God and say, God, show me? I don't want to just live in extravagance. I want to be extravagantly generous. Like the early church, the problem isn't just by nature having money, nor was it that people ever spend it on themselves. The point was our desire should be to stir that we realize the greater thing is to be extravagantly generous. Paul mentions this. He says, as for the rich, when he's talking to Timothy, He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying, like, Timothy, instruct the rich in this way. Charge them not to be haughty. Don't don't look at it as though, like, oh, well, I earned it. It's mine. I can do whatever I want with it. Teach them to be humble in that, to realize all this comes from God. And don't put your hope in that. Don't put your hope in hoarding and setting enough aside so you can continue the lifestyle that you want and eat, drink, and be merry. Like, encourage them not to um, be haughty, to not set their hopes on these uncertainty of riches, but put their hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So what the picture that Paul is trying to give Timothy here for the rich Christians is that they would enjoy these gifts from God and then they would joyfully give those to others. So the first step is is to enjoy these things as a gift from God. If you think that you have because you earned it, then you will hoard it and you will expend it. You'll be extravagant toward yourself. But if you see everything as a gift from God, then you'll enjoy it as a gift and will give it to others. I think I shared this story before, but I think it was years ago, so most of you probably not heard it, that when I was in, like, I was 14 years old and I went on this missions trip down to Kansas City and was in the inner city and served, um, one of the things that we did was serve at a homeless shelter. And there was uh, a man who was there 
And while we were at this homeless shelter trying to, to feed people, this guy comes up with a plate of cookies. The guy that was homeless and that we had served, he came up with a plate of cookies and he was offering, um, offering us cookies that he had made. And people around me that were older were like, ah, I don't think I can take cookies from, like, that's not okay, right? Like, he's homeless, he's clearly poor, I can, like, go back and, like, I've got these cookies, he's trying to offer these to me, like, I probably shouldn't take these. And I was 14, I was a 14-year-old boy, I was pleasantly plump, <laughs> I like cookies, so I was like, I'll take a cookie, and I ate the cookie, and it was delicious. And as my mouth is full of cookie, I was like, man, where did you, where did you get the, like, where did you get these? Did you make these yourself? And he told about how he had gotten, somebody had given him some money, and so he went to the store and he bought um, things because he thought what would be a blessing to um, some of his community was to make some cookies and to share them. And I asked him, I said, well, how, why would you do that? Like, we talked a little bit more and found out that he didn't have very much, and I asked him why he would do that, and he looked at me confused, and he said, when God has been so generous to me, how could I keep that all to myself? That radically changed the way I viewed so many things. Are we, do we have that same posture? One of my favorite verses in Acts, one of my favorite little phrases that I use a lot in prayers is in Acts 2.46 where it says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. I love that phrase. Glad and generous hearts. Often in our home, we're praying for over a meal. I pray that we would receive these gifts with glad and generous hearts. Hearts that are joyful and filled with, with hearts that are that receiving these gifts from our Father who loves us. And then generosity would flow out of us as God has been generous to us. Now listen, I get it. I mean, this is very interesting timing. This was not planned out. But this week is Thanksgiving and Good Friday and all kinds of stuff. Good Friday? Black Friday. Wow. <laughs> For those of you seminary students, that's called syncretism, Tiffany. <laughs> Thanksgiving and Black Friday. Holidays devoted to extravagance. So what do we do? Do you sit at your family on Thursday? Do you sit at the Thanksgiving table and be like, I refuse to eat? in solidarity with my brothers and sisters who do not have a Thanksgiving meal. Maybe. If you do, please take video of that. But that is an issue of faithfulness in your conscience and asking God. Another way of doing it based on what Paul told Timothy is to receive it with glad and generous hearts. To consider, like, who do I know, neighbors or coworkers who don't have a place to go? How can this be poured out in extravagant generosity? What's our, what's our plan for leftovers here? Like, is my plan that tomorrow on Friday I'm gonna like, take the leftover pumpkin pie and put dressing and turkey on it and gravy, which by the way is amazing to do that. Um, is that what I'm gonna do or am I gonna, am I gonna look to do something else with it? They're just things to consider. But it all comes from enjoying it as a gift from our Father 
the Holy Spirit's role in this is not to like just make you feel guilty for every bite of stuffing on Thursday. His desire is that we would receive that with glad and generous hearts that would pour out into generosity for others, receiving everything as a gift and giving it. And finally, the reason why all this matters is the hoarding and the extravagance is all going to perpetuating injustice. James says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. James is not pulling any punches here. There's hoarding, extravagance, but there are the cries of the suffering that God hears. And this is about oppression. Like we said, God sees it all. And you may be saying here, just because I want to speed up a little bit, but you may be saying, like, that feels a little bit heavy-handed. I'm not exactly Scrooge McDuck sitting over here. And you may not be. You may not be a wealthy CEO who is oppressing your workers by the way, if you are, if you do own a business or you are a CEO or if you are an employer of people, which by the way also means whenever you hire like a plumber or someone to come over to your house to do work, like you are in that position, you are an employer. Like we should seek to do justice with that, to pay people fairly for their jobs, to not look for loopholes, to cheat people out of money or to use their situation against them to get ourselves a better deal and save a few bucks. That's exploitation, and we shouldn't, as kingdom people, have anything to do with that. That's not the only way injustice is done through our money, especially as we approach Black Friday and the Christmas shopping season. So an estimated 50 million people are enslaved across the world. We have more slaves today than we've ever had in the history of the world, and an estimated 6 million of those are children. And by the way, as far as child labor goes, that doesn't even count the 160 additional million children who are working in situations that we would all look at and say, ah, uh, kids should not be doing that and working in those places. But technically, they don't meet the definition of enslavement, so they don't count on those numbers. And most of those people who are enslaved are enslaved by the textile industry to satisfy our demand for fast, cheap, new clothes. Our demand, the Western world's demand for us. And speaking of waste, most of what we buy, because we have to have it and we need the cheapest price, it ends up polluting the environment of the poor who cannot do anything about it. Do you want to see a picture of a beach that used to be for people and kids to play on? There you go. It's like what happens is the rich demand cheap goods and they hoard them and then don't need them and we throw them out and we dump them in places where the people are too poor to be able to do anything about it. And I just want to say, like, I've been a part of that. But if we're going to read James 5 faithfully, 
we can't distance ourselves from all these things and we have to be willing to say, there's some things going on in our culture. Because remember, James is talking about the culture here. So the world says it's not your problem. But in the kingdom, what we do matters. So the simple way that the kingdom flips injustice upside down is that instead of our money going to further injustice, we want to use it in a way that contributes to justice. And when the world says, it's not my problem, we say, no, it matters. Because the Lord hears their cries. I have to credit my wife for bringing a lot of these things to my attention. Over the years, we've felt convictions as a family, which means that there are some places that are off our list that we can't buy anything from. And, and I will admit that that gets annoying at times. And it's a little annoying sometimes when I have to text or call my wife and say, am I allowed to buy this? And then she'll say, no, keep looking. And I'll say, okay, but it fits me. And uh, I look, look how handsome I look in it. Um, she doesn't care. And so we wonder, like, what do we do? Like, the point of this is not to, like, to heap shame or guilt about buying. Like, you can't do everything. None of us are powerful enough in and of ourselves to, like, turn the tide on this. But the question is, what can we consider? How can we be more intentional? And so just, like, a couple of quick tips to help. If you see that and you think, ah, I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to contribute to that unknowingly. Like, one is just to be aware of it. And so one thing you can do is, when you can, support companies that treat workers fairly. Like you can do a lot of research online to find reputable companies. And by the way, unfortunately, Made in America doesn't equal that. Like that's not, that's not just a simple, easy thing. Like there's just, there's injustice here and there's, um, there are good, healthy, um, um, just, just companies that, that are in other places in the world. But we can say, like, I want to think about that and consider that. Again, with Christmas shopping season approaching, like one of the things that I started doing that is annoying is like I don't buy anything on Thanksgiving Day. It's one little thing. Who really cares? Like I might have bought a toothbrush. I don't know. But the thing is, I don't want to encourage a culture of employers saying like, oh, I feel like, no, we have to be open on Thanksgiving Day. And so that takes people who don't have a choice, who have to come into work and have to be away from their families. And we can, as a culture, just say, yeah, we're not doing that. Black Friday's enough. 4 a.m. Friday, plenty early enough to buy that TV I'm going to throw out in a year. All right, we just got to be aware of that. Another option is like when you do buy, like you need to save money to buy secondhand. As many of you know, Lauren loves thrifting, but you may not have known there are ethical reasons behind it. And so when we want like high quality things or whatever, like we want to buy things, Lauren's always big on like, like you need to have something high quality which, by the way, like, do you guys ever notice I wear the same jeans every Sunday? <laughs> Carrie noticed. Yeah, totally. All right. I wear the same jeans every Sunday. I've worn these for probably two years. And they probably been washed twice. This is why. <laughs> I asked Lauren, like, what should I share? And she said, not too much. <laughs> Fail. Like, these are just little things. You just say, okay, I'm going to buy it with something high quality and wear it. And, like, then you buy secondhand. And if you need help, like, you can ask Lauren about some of those things. She loves showing people how to thrift and how to, to do that. Um, and, then, and then, but finally, like, if you buy the cheap thing, just wear the stuffing out of it. 
Right? Some of us are in a situation, and we've been in a situation before where it's all we can do to afford the cheap thing. Like if you, if you have like, you need money like, and, and you don't have enough to buy like a winter coat for your kids and you find something online for seven bucks and you do it because you have to do that, do it and do it with a clear conscience and just wear it well. Like just use it well. And we can't all do all the things, but together we can do something and consider it. I mean, a simple rule of thumb in our house is if I'm buying the cheap questionable thing, so that I can buy more of it, that's when I pause and think, ah, maybe I want to reconsider that. If I'm buying the cheap thing because I can only buy one, then I'm just going to use it really well and let the work of justice being not adding to the landfills and the waste dumped on the world's poor. I mean, listen, we know this as well as anybody, right? Like, we live in a manufacturing area We live in a farming area. We know there's no such thing as free. Someone is paying, right? When fuel prices go up and grocery prices stay the same, we know someone's paying. And the injustice that James is talking about is when the rich oppress the poor by passing the cost onto them. And when we flippantly buy and consume, we are flippantly contributing to great injustices around the world. And I just think it would be good for us to reconsider, to say something to the world about it does matter to me how children in Bangladesh are experiencing the ocean. Like it matters to me. Which, by the way, should be our wheelhouse because don't we love a boycott, right? Like we love a good boycott. It's just fascinating to me that we have no issue boycotting a company based on the political beliefs of a CEO, but we struggle to do the same to push against slavery and oppression of the poor across the world. Is that what James would be talking about? And why do we do that? Because the harsh reality is we tend to care far more about making statements about issues that crowd our headlines than we do about the poor that we cannot see. And let's face it, we typically boycott only if there's a cheap and easy replacement for that thing, right? Let's be honest. Remember when people tried to boycott Chick-fil-A? Remember that? You know why that failed? Because people like Chick-fil-A. And they were like, ah, I refuse to give them my bed. This chicken's really good. <laughs> oh, but you could try this place over here. Like, mm, it's not as good. Right? Or we have a situation right now, and honestly, I, I'm not, I wasn't going to name it because I can't even remember it, but there is a cheap beer provider that's being boycotted. Imagine if that was the only cheap beer provider. Like, would we? Would they have the same kind of boycott? Like, it's not meant to make you feel guilty about buying lattes and Christmas presents. It's to slow down and consider and say, how can I use what God has given me in a way that reflects the kingdom, that shows that I am submitted to a king, that I'm storing up treasures in heaven, and that I care for the people that God cares for? That's it. Paul, I think, wraps it up nicely. He says in Philippians 2, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And where do we get that mindset? Glad you asked. 
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When we question some of these things, when we push back against a culture of extravagance and hoarding and the injustice that flows from it, we're saying something true about our God. When we count others as more significant than ourselves, we seek the interests of others and we say, yeah, I'm going to do without this so that I can give this over here. We're saying something about our God and our King who emptied himself and now is highly exalted. Don't miss this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We are ambassadors for Christ. We get to display the glory of his kingdom. That's how I want us to approach. Like That's what my encouragement from James as we approach the holiday season. Just be intentional. Be obedient to Christ. See the joyful gifts that he is giving you. That it's way better to be extravagantly generous than to just live in extravagance. Everybody who does that, like when you give those things away rather than just hoarding things to yourself, like it's better. He gives us a better thing. Be intentional. Take each moment by faith. And when you aren't, when you don't have a choice and you're in a situation and you're saying like, yeah, this is just part of the culture that I'm in, then just do that and receive with gladness how God has provided for you and trust him with everything else. Find joy in supporting. Like, it's really fun. It's been fun for us to go and to take our money and to say, I want to, I get to choose what I get to do with my money. That's one of the advantages of being in a world where we have consumeristic choices is we can make choices and we can support different things. We can make statements with how we spend our money and how we spend our time. And those statements say something to the world who looks at us and says, is your God real? Who is your God? And we get to tell them, but the God who is extravagantly generous, who didn't hoard his glory to himself, but shared it freely with rebels that he made sons and daughters and heirs to his kingdom. And so while the world hoards out of fear and self-reliance, let us be the ones who put money to use for kingdom ministries, to invest in our communities While the world lives in extravagance, let us be extravagant in our generosity. And while the world full of injustice, all all stemming from our greed, let us be different, making choices that encourage justice, that considers the interests of others, especially the least of these who will be highly exalted. Let's pray. Father, thank you God, thank you that you, you don't hide these things from us. It's so plain. Lord, you know that there are literally hundreds of texts that I could go to to demonstrate how one of the most powerful testimonies you have given us is how those with power care for those without knowing that none of our power comes from ourselves but from you. And that those who have been laid low will be exalted in the kingdom. 
But these are kingdom things that we can't comprehend with worldly minds. So Lord, give us renewed minds and renewed hearts that would see how beautiful it is to be able to participate in the kingdom coming to earth. To be able to declare your goodness and to reflect the beautiful truth that you, Lord Jesus, emptied yourself. You became like us. You lived the life that we were meant to live and died the death that we deserved. Through extravagant generosity and extravagant love, you poured out mercy upon mercy and grace upon grace that we might not just be forgiven, but redeemed. And not just redeemed, but adopted as sons and daughters. And not just adopted as sons and daughters, but made heirs to your kingdom that we might enjoy you forever. Let us declare these things for the good and the hope of a lost and hurting world and for our unending joy. Amen.